This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is valued. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real Life Christian Church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. Hebrews 12, 2, where the Word of God says, fix your eyes on Jesus. So you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And you do what Jesus would do, and that's okay, but you got to be very careful there because you don't want to reduce Jesus to a moral do-gooder. He is the Son of God. He is also true man and the same person at the same time. And when you fix your eyes and your heart and your mind on Jesus and do what Jesus would do, here's why you do it. Because here is a record of all of your sins. Let's say that's your record. And you look at that sin record and you say, oh man, I'm dead. But here's Jesus' record. Not one sin. And so Jesus says, Let's trade. You give me your book, I'll take your sins. I'll give you mine. So yeah, look to Jesus and do what Jesus would do, but not simply to do the right thing. Most people want to do the right thing, and most people are not saved. So you do what Jesus would do because you love him for taking your sin book and paying the debt crucified for you on a cross saying, Father, forgive those folks. They don't know what they're doing. And he said that after they brutalized him. Now, today we're going to go to John 5. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, there was a feast of the, feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he's in Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Well, let's stop there. So Jerusalem was a walled city with gates. The sheep gate was the designated gate where you bring in all the animals of sacrifice, all the animals you're going to sell in the marketplace and all that stuff. And right by that gate, the sheep gate, excuse me, there was a pool with five roofed colonnades, which is, excuse me, another word for a porch. It's a fancy name for a porch. So you got this pool in the center surrounded by five porches. Anyway, these five porches surround the pool named Bethesda, which is a Hebrew word meaning house of outpouring. And there were lots of invalid people there, including blind, lame, and paralyzed people. And I believe that Jesus showed up at this Bethesda pool for a particular reason because of one man. And this is verse 5 of John 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, And he knew he'd already been there for a long time, 38 years. He said to him, do you want to be healed? 
And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going in, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to them, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he got up and took up his bed and walked. And so he knew, that's verse 6 of John 5, he knew the man's condition. That's why I believe he went for this particular man. He knew it. He knew how long he'd been in this condition, singles him out of all the others, and he says, do you want to be healed? And there was a superstition surrounding that Bethesda pool, and your King James Bible will reflect that. This is not in the best manuscripts, the original manuscripts, but the King James Bible will reflect that. They honestly believe that an angel would come down from heaven and, and, and just trouble or stir up the waters of the pool. And here's all these invalid people just, just trying to struggle to get in the pool first because the superstition was when the angel came and stirred up that pool, if you got in there first, you would be healed. Now, does that sound like God? Of course not. That, that, that's not God. And so the guy says, you know, 38 years ago, my kids brought me to this pool because, because we believed this angel would stir up the waters. And, and every time I, you know, I'm just, I'm just crawling and scratching to get in there first. And every time, every time I just start to, to just plunge myself in, somebody got in first. And Jesus just looks at the guy compassionately. I see him shaking his head because these people actually believed these superstitions. And Jesus just compassionately looks at this guy. You, you poor soul believe in that stuff, you know? He says, come on, take up your bed and go and walk. And now you get to the fly in the ointment. Jesus did this to this man on the Sabbath day, and the guy was carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath, and the rabbis regarded that as work. And of course, that was a foolish man-made law, and the Jewish leaders see him and they say, what are you doing carrying your bedroll? This is illegal by our laws. There are folks like that. There are. And this man says, but this guy told me to take up my bed and walk. And they say, who, what guy? Verse 12, John 5. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had withdrawn. Now, those Jewish leaders leave and Jesus comes back. And this is key. This is very important. There's a lot of doctrine here. In verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So the guy went to the temple. And you know what? I, 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 I think something's happening in his heart. And he says, see, you're still well. Jesus says this. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And that tells me that this paralysis or whatever, whatever it was this man had, whatever made him an invalid, was from God 38 years ago as a, for some issue in his life. And in God's time, Jesus sought him out and said, okay, the discipline is over. Learn from this. If not... You know, my, my father's going to have to apply more pressure. He's going to have to turn the screws a little harder, and, and you ain't going to like that. Let me read it again. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Learn your lesson, Charlie. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It was a discipline to work the bugs out of this guy or to do something significant in his life. Way back one. Well, I call this message, 
God's perfect timing, Jesus went to the house of outpouring. That's what Bethesda means, the house of outpouring. And the word of God says he knew. See, he went with divine knowledge of this guy's condition. I think in this case, God deliberately sent this condition as a discipline. So God the Father sent it at a point in time, and Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world and removed it at a point in time, and that time was God's time. He walks into this area, and there is a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed people all over the place, and they believe this stupid superstition that when the water bubbles or is stirred, you know, you got to just scratch your way to get in there first. I see something of Satan and demonic spirits there because I just see invalid people just scratching, da, 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 killing themselves, hurting themselves to get into this pool. And I said, that, that's not God. And I'm thinking, no, just come for this one guy or not, and not heal everybody there. Is very unlike Jesus. What I thought of was Mark chapter 1, verse 32. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. All who were sick or oppressed. And the whole city was gathered at the door. And he, Jesus, healed all those folk who were sick with various diseases and cast out many, many demons. And so he healed everybody in the city of Capernaum who came to that particular door. And he worked far into the night, see? But this time, all those people, and he came for that one particular man. Because in the plan of God, time of his discipline was over. It was the right time. And I like to believe that Jesus' words, stop sinning, or the next discipline will be even more severe, got into the man's brain and sunk down into his heart. That's why we find him in the temple. So I looked at this word of God and I thought about how we use the word seekers, meaning let's be sensitive to people seeking God. <clears throat> we apply that term seeker to people who are seeking God. And I really believe we have to be sensitive to people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. We gotta be super sensitive to those guys. But I ask myself, is there really such thing as a seeker? Because I look at this word of God and I see Jesus, he's seeking this guy out, right? Guy's not seeking Jesus, is he? Now look at Luke 19, 10, the word of God says, the son of man came to what? Seek, right? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Romans 3 says, no one seeks God. He seeks us. We don't seek him. See, people don't naturally seek the Lord. That's why I question the team's term seeker. Because we have a fallen sinful nature, man. And unless the Holy Spirit does something in your heart, you ain't going to seek the Lord. And really what happens is this. I mean, you tell someone, I mean, you tell someone, hey, man, you know, you're out of sync with this. You're out of, you're, you're, you're out of step with the word of God, see? And you talk about their need for the Lord. And they may reject it at first, but I'll tell you something, folks, that rolls around in their brain and it trickles down to their heart and God's spirit is working in them through that word of God that you gave them and they get interested in the things of God. But nobody ever sought God. Nobody. Nobody ever naturally seeks God until the spirit of God begins to break down that wall of resistance and it's all the spirit. So, God seeks us, we don't seek him. But here, this is so good. He partners with us. He uses our word, our witness, to start the breakdown, this process of breakdown in a person's heart, his plan to use us 
in the process of salvation. Folks, you talk about being significant. People look for significance. Significance or a meaningful life. When the Lord brings somebody into your life and gives you and me the opportunity to bring something of Jesus Christ into their lives, even if they don't accept it then and there, I mean, you're part of a whole wonderful process. God doesn't just step in and save them. Jesus pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And you're out there in the harvest. And he gives you the distinct honor of partnering with him. And he brings people into your life and allows you to share the word with them. He says, man, I put the truth in you. Now move this person. Move this person toward the cross. Now when God says, here's someone who I want to bring into eternal joy with myself, and you're part of that whole process, that's better than anything in your life. I'm not kidding you. But nobody seeks God. He seeks us. There is no such thing as a seeker. So let's look at this deal about God's time and make some points. Okay, this guy waited for 38 years, God's time to bring whatever infirmity he had to an end. And so here's the first point. God's time is always the right time. God's time is always the right time. And Paul says, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. We sang about that today. I will boast in the Lord my God. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 17. Man, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. So let me do that. Let me boast a little bit. Let me boast in the Lord because I'm learning to wait on the Lord. I used to get so frustrated when what I, what I thought should happen, and it was the perfect solution, what I thought should happen, when it should happen, didn't happen. But more and more, I'm learning to say God's time is the right time. Now, you got to pick the circumstance in your life, and you got to write the message here. I'm not going to pick the circumstance in your life. But how often have you said to God, God, now is the right time to make this happen. Now is the right time. It is the perfect time, Lord, to bring about an end to this or to make this thing happen, whatever it is, see? And more and more, that's why I'm boasting in the Lord, I find myself saying, you know, God's working. I don't know how, but he is working. And his time is the right time. We have all of our when questions. But I find myself more and more and more, and this is my boast in the Lord, able to let all the whens to God. And here's why. It's God's word. I mean, people will tell you, Oh, in God's time, happen in God's time. You know, that can be a lot of insensitive, pious talk, too. And unless you're led by the Spirit to say that, you know it's the Spirit. Don't say it, okay? Then you go to this word, and, and you build your trust and your endurance on passages like this in Psalm 139, verse 1. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, I'll read to verse 6. You discern my thoughts from afar. That's scary. He knows your thoughts. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You, 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 you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high I can't attain to it. See, now that's something I can hang on to. The Bible tells me that God knows me so well. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows you perfectly. He knows your future. He knows your present. He knows your circumstances. He knows you're about to crash. Get this. He knows you're about to crash, and he knows your limit. These aren't my thoughts. These are God's. This is your memory passage, I think, for today. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'm going to read this. Listen. 
No temptation or testing. I'll read it, testing. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to other people. God is faithful and he will not let you be, listen now, God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your ability, but with the testing, he will provide the way of escape that you can endure it. So here's what that means. He knows right where you are. That's either God's word or it isn't, right? He knows right where you are. And you're still going through that tunnel. You're still going through that testing. And it says he knows exactly what you can endure. And you're thinking, I can't take anymore. But if you're still enduring it, yes, you can. It says, God, when you can't take anymore, God will provide the way of escape. And he knows. He knows you so well, see. He knows when you can't take anymore. So you're saying, God, I can't take anymore. It's the right time to get this thing out of here. And if you're still going through it, then you can take more or else this is a lie. And that's not a lie. And see, and his constant flow of grace, his flow of grace is constant. You tell like this guy in John 5, he accomplishes his purpose. Time to end this deal. Jesus said, you want to be healed. And the guy says, uh, 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 I can't get into the pool first. And despite his superstitions, despite his doubts, Jesus' compassion comes through and he heals him. Listen, folks, he has perfect knowledge of you. He knows right where you are in your thing. He knows right when to end it. He has perfect timing. He has perfect love for you. That's the cross. But man, you've got to take hold of this. That's something you've got to believe. I mean, don't, don't just recite it. God's timing is right. You've got to believe that. That he knows you perfectly. He's got total charge of your future. Knows just when to end it. I mean, you've got to preach it to yourself. And pray earnestly, oh, Lord, I want to trust your time. Help me do that. And that's really the second point about God's time. The first point is God's time is the right time. Second is don't, don't always try and figure out what God's doing. Why, you know, when, why, all that. Don't try and figure it out, see. Just trust him. And I don't know why, but I thought of Joshua. Well, I think it's the Holy Spirit. I like to believe it's the Holy Spirit. I thought about Joshua. I'm in Joshua chapter 6, page 178 in this Bible, which doesn't help you a whole lot. The people of Israel in the promised land of Canaan. And God says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to fight your battles. And I'm going to give you victory over all these pagan people who live in this land. This land is going to be yours. First of all, you've got to drive out all these pagan people. I'm going to fight those battles for you. So, man, the Jews are just mowing down all those little pagan tribal people, one after one, one after the other. But then they get to this great big city, the walled city of Jericho, okay? Now, now they get the big deal, Jericho, the fortified walled city. And this is the wall of walls, huge, thick, man. No army ever going to bust through that wall. And so God says, march around the city once each day for seven days. And on day number seven, you walk around that wall seven times. And then you blast the shofar, which is the ram's horn or the trumpet. After you blast the shofar, you shout with all your might. And that's the battle plan that God gave to Joshua. So Joshua is sitting down in a meeting with his generals. And Joshua says, hey, guys, no horses, no spears, no siege ramps to scale the wall, no battering rams to break through the gate. And maybe those generals are saying, forget the shofar. Let's get some big logs, cut down some trees, get some solid battering rams, and we'll break through that wall and we'll eat them up. Well, they did it the Lord's way. Verse 20, 
of Joshua 6. So the people shouted and they blew the shofars or the trumpets. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the shofar, the people shouted a great shout and the wall, listen, the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured this city. Now, here's where this is going. You don't try and understand God. You don't try. I mean, a battle plan like that makes no sense. You trust him. You trust his love. You trust his power. You trust his wisdom, his faithfulness, all working for you. Now, if Israel's army did it with siege ramps, okay, scale the walls and battering rams and swords, the Jews could say what? We mowed those guys down, right? How great is our army? Now they're saying, isn't our God great? See, in that way, God gets the glory. And God is working, folks. Listen now. He's working so the day comes when he comes through for you in his time and you know, you just know, man. I mean, this whole thing didn't make sense. Look what God did in his time. Different battle plan than you ever had, man, I'll tell you. In his time, you know, you know, you know, you know it's him. And the thanksgiving and the praise well up in you. And you see God come through, and sometimes, I, I, this has happened to me, you see God come through and you've been so impatient with him and all your wins and you just want to cry. Man, he's getting glory. You don't understand his timing, but man, he's getting glory. Listen, listen. When God's time comes, you have mixed feelings. First, your conscience is pricked. It's pricked. And well, it should be. You say, all my grousing, all my anxiety, all my lack of trust. But the other feeling you get is, look what my God did. Just look what my God did. See, that's what you are. You are proud. You can do what we sang this morning, man. You can boast in the Lord. You're doing a 2 Corinthians 10, 17. You're boasting in the Lord. And you're saying, this is my God. You got two ambivalent feelings going together. Oh, why did I grouse? You're sorry for your sins. And at the same time, you're saying, man, this is my God. Woo! Third point. Guy had to learn from this discipline. And that's verse 14, back to John 5. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Now, he's not at the pool anymore. He's in the temple. Something's happened in this guy's life. He says, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, I don't know what was going on in this guy's younger life. But God brought this whatever it was, this illness, this discipline into his life, and in his perfect time, he removed it. In his perfect time, he removed it with this warning from Jesus God himself. You were in the crucible of suffering for a time to purge you maybe, to train you, whatever. Now learn from this, Jesus said, or the next thing is going to be even tougher. You know, I think of a guy who learned, Simon Peter. He did not, he ever knew Jesus, remember that? You know, you, you know, you know the, the, the neat thing about that is they're interrogating Jesus in a room here. Peter's down there in this court. They get Peter who said, I'll never deny you. And he denied him three times. And Jesus comes out of that room, hands bound behind his back, and he looks right at Peter. He just looks right at him. Man, if Peter were me, I'd shrink into nothing. 
Anyway, the Bible says in Luke 22, 62, he went out and wept bitterly. He's walking, he's thinking. He's saying, this man, Jesus, has given me everything in my life that means anything. My life was empty before. What did I do? Why did I deny him? And he vowed, Peter vowed, I will never, ever do this again. See, he learned from his discipline because I read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were going on. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Peter learned. And so as you go through those times of discipline, you learn. I learned two things. Thing number one, I learned that making the first move for healing and reconciliation is always up to me because I'm the Christian. I don't care if I was wrong. I don't care if I was right. Making the first move is always, always up to me, folks. Always up to me. In any broken or strained relationship, I've learned I am never, 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 never not guilty. See, listen, God the Father in heaven saw what you were going to do. He said, okay, go ahead and do it. And I'm going to train my child. And when he or she learns what I want him to learn, then it goes. Do you see God's perfect time? When God teaches you what he wants you to learn, then it goes. If it hasn't gone yet, you are still in training. That's God's perfect timing. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.